0: You know, you think about, you know, some of the, the questions about the justice system or engineering or nursing or any other field for that matter. If it's predominantly one gender, predominantly one culture who who dominates that area, then, yeah, it's difficult for someone who doesn't look like that to break into it because it seems to be different.
1: I would also throw in education in, in itself. I think education, when it comes to classroom teaching, tends to be dominated by, well, elementary or K-12 is more dominated by women versus males.
2: So. And yet, historically, there have been a disproportionate number of men in administrative roles relative to the number of male-female teachers in the industry. Exactly. Is that which so? is a separate issue. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I found out while teaching in Japan that most instructors were male, even uh elementary school and that a majority of the administrative staff were uh i don't want to say majority but uh, at least from what i saw were female so there's a (laughs) flip there
0: you're listening to instruction by design your podcast to the art of teaching
3: today our discussion will focus on the intersection where our socially constructed worldviews collide with the pursuit to learn and educate others it's no secret that culture impacts nearly every facet of our learning both online and on ground our classroom and interface designs, the symbols we use to communicate, the ways in which we seek help and negotiate meaning are all derived from our unique cultural imprinting. This is a subject that is near and dear to me as for several years I was a teacher of English as a foreign language while living abroad in East Asia. Upon my return to the U.S. in 2012, I spent another two years teaching synchronous online courses to massive audiences of Chinese learners often with 500 to over 1,000 in attendance at any given time. For me, those years were more than just teaching English, as I learned quickly that to be successful, I needed to understand how to educate the Eastern mind. Doing that, however, required an acute awareness of my own Western-centric biases about education. Teaching abroad, and particularly online, taught me that we live in a hyper-connected world, the result of technology and rapid globalization. And because of this, now more than ever, it is essential to pay attention to what it means to educate learners from diverse backgrounds. Let's take, for instance, the massively open online courses known as MOOCs. In 2012, MOOCs had exploded in popularity and were a significant gesture in open access learning to global audiences. The notion was inspiring. Nearly anybody from anywhere in the world with a decent internet connection could become educated if they really wanted to. Yet, for all the gushing and hype, there was one glaring issue. That is, some of the biggest sponsors and providers of MOOCs, Coursera, Udacity, and edX, were all decidedly Western institutions, which one might argue promoted a Western-centric model of learning to international learners. Of course, the need for culturally considerate course design is not limited to online and distance education. According to a recently released survey by the Babson Research Group, in 2016 there were over 1.1 million international students studying at U.S. academic institutions. Of those, 45,000 are enrolled in online distance education programs, a small but not insignificant number. These examples highlight the need to tackle the challenges of educating a worldwide audience. So through this lens, I would like to discuss in further detail a few of the critical issues for teaching audiences of diverse backgrounds, including perceptions of power distance, gender issues, and course design. That is to say, this podcast will take a look at considerations for educating a global audience. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft from the academic innovation team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Discussing this topic with me today are... Stephen Crawford
1: Jeanette Senecal Celia Katritiwa.
3: All right, so let's begin this conversation by looking at Dutch social psychologist Geert Hofstede's Cultural Dimensions Theory. This is a framework for cross-cultural communication, which describes critical values that a society's culture imbues onto its members... These dimensions include Power Distance Index, Individualism versus Collectivism, Uncertainty Avoidance Index, and Masculinity versus Femininity. And I want to particularly focus on the Power Distance Index, or PDI. Is anybody familiar with this? That's fine, because I have an explanation here. So basically, the higher a country ranks in PDI, the more the society believes that inequalities amongst people are acceptable. Hierarchy and an uneven distribution of power is clearly established and executed in society without doubt or reason. And then a lower degree of the index signifies that people question authority and attempt to distribute power more equitably. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask, as U.S. citizens, do you know where the U.S. stands on this index? Zero being low, 100 being high?
0: I'm going to guess we're pretty high up the index because of our We tend to look at everything as an American-centric view, and we kind of ignore the inequalities.
3: Okay. High power index. That's going to be my guess. Stephen says high.
2: As a somewhat individualistic-oriented society, I'm going to guess on the high-medium
3: range. Okay. High-medium, Jeanette. Celia, any idea?
1: I'm going to go middle range with the idea that we have so many different cultures embedded within our United States that we have kind of middle range of everything.
3: Well, Celia, you are correct. Ding, we are ding, in the middle. Ding. We actually score, I believe, a 48 out of the 100. So we bias slightly, just slightly towards lower power distance. So my question, my first question is, have you ever had to teach students who are from countries with a high perception of power distance? These would include countries like Saudi Arabia, China, uh, even some of the South American countries like Panama, Guatemala, Mexico has a particularly high index. So, and I know we've all had teaching experience here, so any experience with that?
2: Um, I'll go first. The thing that sticks out in my mind are over the years I've had a few students from Eastern Asia countries, and the, the thing that I remember is sometimes they were hesitant to ask for help or clarification mm-hmm. or to approach their peers for help or clarification.
3: Do you think this was because they didn't want to ask in front of you? Maybe when you left the room or when they left the room, they would feel more free to
2: to ask? It just seemed like there was less of the approachability factor, that they didn't feel that I was approachable in the same way, I guess, Mm -hmm. perhaps?
3: Mm -hmm. I had similar experiences when I was teaching in China. The the teacher's word is law, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, you'd have to be careful when, for example, criticizing something that a student said in front of their peers because given the high power distance, they could lose face in front of their peers.
1: Right. In my teaching experience, I taught for a school that had a high refugee population. So I had many experiences with high PDI. A couple of the experiences that I've had have been working as a teacher for a family that came from Nigerian royalty. They had high emphasis on education, and the instructor was seen as the authority figure. Along with that, I also had a set of twins whose father had passed away. They were Middle Eastern descent. With them, they were seen as the head of the household. So we did have some interesting learning experiences and dealing with children who were probably around maybe fourth grade, but were seen as the men of the household, therefore they were more of the authority figure. So Mm -hmm. I've had some pretty interesting experiences.
3: I'm looking at the list here and I'm seeing that Nigeria has a PDI of 77. So that's relatively high Mm -hmm. perception of power distance. And um, some Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates both have a score of 80, which is quite high. So it's been noted that cultures with a high power index often adopt the traditional didactic approach to learning. That is, the student is a passive recipient of information that is being given by the instructor who is at the center of the room giving their lecture. But given what we know today about the efficacy of student-centered approaches to learning, what might you do differently when designing a course where you knew that some or all of the student body were from backgrounds with a strong perception of power distance?
0: You know, I think one of the things that come to mind is again going back to the authority figure, uh, how how important that is. And you know, and the teacher is the expert and is not to be questioned in, in, in some cultures, especially apparently those with the, the high power index. And that being said, it's difficult for those students to ask questions when they don't understand something because to ask a question means to not know. And if you don't know, then that means you're more inferior than you should be. And therefore, you should figure it out on your own. And I think that's something to be mindful of some students from those cultures because they need permission to ask questions sometimes. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of times we talk about muddiest points discussion boards because it gives permission to to ask questions that aren't clear to you it makes it clear to the, to all of the students that you may not understand this the first go around so therefore this is where you ask that question to go to the next level whereas as an instructor if i go anybody have any questions that's that's kind of a that's that's a style of saying please don't ask any questions because if you do you don't know what's going on and therefore I don't want you to ask questions. So that's, you know, so, so asking how you ask que- students to ask questions, I think is very important and, and asking it in a way that is permissive, I think is helpful.
2: I think for me, after a couple of enlightening sociology and anthropology courses, I started to develop a framework of thinking about question everything. You you know, you come with your own bias and your own lens, but to always try to step back for a moment and try to figure out how that's going to impact your students, your co-instructors, whoever's going to touch on those materials?
1: I think one of the more subtle ways of preparing students is in those introductory phases of your class. Um, Setting up your classroom culture, whether it's face-to-face or online or hybrid, whatever model uh, you are teaching in, and giving the students That type of information that lets them know what sort of instructor you are and how you like to work with those students. Um, That way the students feel a little more comfortable and know how to approach you if they do have questions or need to talk about anything um, content related. That way if they do come from those higher PDIs where everything that the instructor says is expert knowledge, they start to realize like, oh, okay, wait, I'm I'm still learning, I can still ask questions and I can start to become part of that expert knowledge. Mm-hmm.
3: Piece. Setting the climate early. Yes. And that's a good insight, I think, because I had a similar experience or revelation as I was teaching. I would watch the teachers in China who were Chinese and I noticed that they were very authoritative when they would speak to the students very uh, sharp, direct yes and no answers, and a general, so they were very they were very d- decisive in their answers to the students, and they didn't really engage in a lot of small talk, for example, at least in the classroom. And I noticed that when I, it was my turn to teach, they were actually a bit relieved at my approach being so different than what they were used to. Now, I, I taught younger learners, so I don't know, in, in that case, it would change with the adult learners, but I taught, uh, well, I, I did teach young adults, so and I would say with them as well, I think they appreciated the fact that I wasn't engaging in that same dynamic that they were used to, and that was totally a, sort of a naivety on my part. I didn't realize I was behaving so differently, but to, to admit in front of the entire students if they asked me a question, oh, I'm not sure, let's look it up, to them, I, I think it might have been a bit relieving. Because you yeah, have to admit in front of everybody, or to, to raise your hand and ask a question in front of everybody makes you a mark to that authoritarian figure. And if I, I've seen teachers uh, take out their tempers on the students before. Um, one teacher actually hit a student in the face with a book. Actually, I didn't see that, but I heard about this. And I of course, I quip, doesn't your teacher know there's no Facebook in class? <laughs> <laughs> Which is awful. But, I mean, you know, you have to make light of it because that, that's through everyday reality. Like, that's the way the teachers behave. And, you know, to hear that shocking, you know, I would lose my job if that were me here. And so you can't help but to bring that with you when you teach abroad or, you know, you're going to be how you were brought up, basically. OK, so I want to offer a critique of Hofstede's uh, cultural dimensions theory in that it tends to be. Look, it tends to be a bit extreme. You have either individualistic or collectivist cultures. You have high power distance or low power distance, but some people say he's not giving enough credit to the middle ground. As well, there might might be subcultures that exist within the dominant culture, and these subcultures may act decidedly different. And one example that comes to mind are the native communities within the United States who, as I understand, are more collectivist in nature, whereas the dominant culture here in the U.S. might be more individual-driven. Let's move on to gender issues. I don't think a study of uh, educating the global audience would be complete without looking at some of the gender issues that are involved. So a study done by Cross and Madison in 1997 studied the communication styles by gender, and they say that men tend to be, get ready, independent, assertive, use language to maintain status, dominate in relationships, transmit information, and offer advice to achieve a tangible income. A separate study by Basotho and Rubenfeld in 2003 say that women tend to be expressive, tentative, polite in conversation, value cooperation, and use dialogue to create and foster intimate bonds. By way of your own experiences, can you confirm or deny these communication styles by gender in the classroom?
1: I actually recently read a research paper about learning styles and different cultures. And one of the cultures that they were researching was the Arabic culture and learning styles and differentiating the men's preferred learning style versus the women's preferred learning style. And it was interesting in that the men were more prone to wanting the oral learning style versus women who wanted the kinesthetic learning style. And... I feel like that is interesting when you think in terms of areas like engineering where engineering is a highly male dominated field. Mm-hmm. Now more and more we're learning that women are just as well off in engineering as men are and we're pushing more for that. Because I think that it's such a male dominated field that people tend to think it's not a women's area, but if you if you look at, you know, some of those cultures and <clears throat> you might say that they are high in PDI and so therefore maybe the lecture approach is probably better. But it there I think there still is a difference in female versus male learning. And you do have to take into consideration that there are a variety of learning styles and you do need to push that more so than just looking at PDI. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Part of me wonders also if some of the gender issues are related to the fact that they don't see someone who looks like them teaching the courses. So to use your engineering example, you don't see women in engineering programs because the faculty is predominantly, if not completely male. And you can say the same thing with nursing. You don't see many men in nursing because the faculty is predominantly female. And- And I think those situations just kind of reinforce gender roles inadvertently because if you don't see anybody doing that who looks like you doing the thing you want to do, then that's probably something that your type of person doesn't do. One of my favorite things to do when on jury duty as you're walking from the jury room to, uh, to the courtroom is to just look at every portrait of a judge as you go down the hall. And, and look at how long it takes for one of them to not be a white male mm-hmm. and, and look, you know, it's like, you, cause you know, you think about, you know, some of the, the questions about the justice system or engineering or nursing or any other field for that matter. If it's predominantly one gender, predominantly one culture who, who dominates that area, then yeah, it's difficult for someone who doesn't look like that to break into it because it seems to be different.
1: I would also throw in education in, in itself. I think education, when it comes to classroom teaching, tends to be dominated by, well, elementary or K-12 is more dominated by women versus males.
2: And yet, historically, there have been a disproportionate number of men in administrative roles relative to the number of male-female teachers in the industry. Exactly. Is that which just so? a separate issue. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I found out while teaching in Japan that most instructors were male, even Uh, elementary school, and that a majority of the administrative staff were, uh, well, I don't want to say majority, but uh, at least from what I saw, were female. So there's a (laughs) flip there.
0: I was going to say, I think in the U.S. you'd find most of your K-12 teachers are female with the principals and assistant principals predominantly being male. Mm.
2: And back to communication styles and and gender, I can kind of only speak to my own individual experiences and maybe some of those my my classmate peers when I was in graduate school, but there seem to be at times, this different perception about how males and females were read as either assertive or aggressive when speaking up in classes, which kind of made me uncomfortable at times, where females were were perhaps unfairly characterized as being aggressive in a negative sense, whereas their male counterparts were just seen as being assertive, proactive.
3: Wow. So I'm going to get into trouble here because my one example is from my graduate program, which was online. So we had plenty of discussion boards every week to go through and one class there was one voice that was particularly louder than the rest and it was a woman she and she was very vocal about how she didn't agree with nearly everything you would assert and she would voice her vehement objection and it was it got to be an issue where working with her in groups we had to always have the teacher come in and, and, and mediate the issues that would come up and I met her in person and she was actually quite lovely. But online, she was a firebrand that was, uh, it was a bit tricky to accommodate her eccentricities in the discussion boards. And so to me, the assertive, dominant style that's usually given to the male communication style, I saw it with hers. But then maybe I'm mislabeling here. I but I think
0: some people have a different online voice than in-person voice too. Mm, definitely. And I think sometimes it is, it, I, I do question myself sometimes on if someone's coming across too aggressive. I, I ask myself, am I projecting onto them any questions about where they're coming from? Because, you know, it, passionate people speak passionately. And sometimes that can be misinterpreted as aggression when they just happen to really love what they're talking about.
3: That lack of verbal and visual
0: cues in a text-based environment... Or even in person sometimes, too. ...can lead to a lot of issues. I mean, anybody who raises their voice is considered yelling. Well, no, they could just really love what they're talking about, and they get excited, and their voice goes up with it. Well, this leads into my next
3: question, and I think we might have already answered it, but it's been suggested that computer-mediated learning environments are inherently gender-neutral and therefore, by nature, democratic... So does transferring a course from on ground to online liberate or merely duplicate the confusions that may
0: arise between men and women or just communication issues in general in everyday life? I must say complicate mm. because at least I think it leaves room for misinterpretations. I think as we present content in courses, we have a responsibility to, to help look at things and, and use the clip art in a, in a way that is more representative of society as opposed to always having the same types of people in every image whatsoever. I mean, it's really easy to go, "Oh, I want to get I want to get pictures of students doing X," so I'll just get one class, and so therefore you end up getting the same three guys doing the same thing and they all look the same. That's great that you got the pictures, but that's not representative of the field. Mm-hmm. And so I think having a diverse representation technology allows us to do that much easier
3: absolutely and and to give another example i had recently read about gulf arab females who were taking online courses who were in a chat room with their professor who was a male and the moment a male student entered the virtual chat room they immediately left And so this is reflective of the sort of in-person dynamics that you might see in these countries where there's a strong separation of genders, right? In certain countries, you go to a McDonald's and the men order from one side and the women order from the other. We've all heard this, right? But apparently the same goes for speaking with your instructor, not only on ground, but online. So there is, it, it sounds like moving online doesn't necessarily make anything more democratic.
0: Well, we've seen recent studies where they've submitted resumes to a faculty position that were identical in all things, but name. And Mm -hmm. one was clearly male and one was clearly female. And guess which one got invited for an interview? The female one? Of course not. (laughs) Um, And and that's just it. It's Mm -hmm. like, I think online provides us an opportunity. If we were allowed to use pseudonyms that were gender neutral, we could actually, you know, we could actually achieve a very neutral classroom if the people behind those pseudonyms such Mm -hmm. norms that did not, you know, tip their hand to to, you know, what they were, you know, the the biases, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a lot to go through and then try to do. But it does allow us when grading, because so much is online, if we consciously take the name out of the paper and just look at the paper and not consider who it's from, it does let us be a little bit more neutral, I think. Well, that's a good point about status cues. Um, I was also reading about how uh,
3: Mexican students in online courses view online as a liberating format. Now, you'll remember that Mexico had a high PDI of 81. But what's interesting is that online, they look at the virtual environment as a liberating medium to where they can be more open and vocal towards everybody without having to worry about status, uh, according to the research. And so what was interesting is that they preferred not to include any mention of status. Like, for example, in a discussion board, you'll see someone's name and you might see... I don't know if Blackboard does this, but in certain uh, websites on the forums, you can see like maybe how long they've been a member and what they do, the occupation, those Mm -hmm. kind of cues. They intentionally left those out so they didn't have to play the hierarchy game.
0: So maybe a suggestion you're making here is on the course introduction discussion boards where students introduce themselves and post a picture. Maybe we shouldn't do that in that regard. You know, don't post pictures so we don't have those cues to bias ourselves. Or keep the picture,
3: but don't... You don't have to include your job and rank, you know, for example. But, yeah, I guess if, if, if male or female is an issue, then
0: maybe leave out the
3: picture as well. Yeah.
1: yeah, what's the point of the picture?
0: Yeah, we always say include pictures to help build familiarity, but maybe it's building the wrong familiarity. Instructor presence up against? Student presence, in mm. particular, in this case.
1: Well, plus, it's always interesting to see the types of pictures that students are willing to use as their presence picture.
2: What about forms of address from students to faculty? Do you or have you seen a difference in your online students versus your face-to-face classroom students? I'm curious. Anyone
0: experienced? I I think it's about 50-50 for me when they don't read my introduction They don't know I have a doctorate. They don't. And so what I end up getting is either professor or Mr. Crawford because they just have it or or in some cases, hey, Stephen, I've seen that almost equally. And I can almost tell the three, those three there, well, at least the, the, the professor or the Mr. Crawford, they probably didn't read my introduction at all. You know, if they said at least Stephen, at least they read the email address book before they hit send. So I'll at least give them that much.
2: That's interesting. That's exactly where I was going. My online students tend to be more formal and use a professor or, you know, other title-based introduction versus those who are conversing face-to-face.
1: When I was... In the classroom, I was always Miss C. I always shortened my last name for the students because it's a little more difficult. Uh, but when I worked as an outreach instructor, um, which was based out of a private school, they called me Miss Celia. And it was it was interesting because I would hear, you know, my colleagues also calling me Miss Celia, and they taught the students to, to call us by our first names, adding Miss or Mrs. before it. But it was an interesting feeling to, to be called by my first name as a teacher because I think I just always referred to teachers as Miss or Mrs. or Mr. by their last name. So it was, a very, it was very different going into that type of um, environment where you go by the first name instead. I don't know if it was a way of making you feel equal or making the students feel like they were equal. I'm not sure what the what the reasoning was behind that or why they, they go by the first name, but definitely very different.
3: I remember when I first started teaching public high school in Japan, they asked me, how do you want to be called by the students? And I said, oh, they can call me Mr. K. I thought that was cool. You know, I'm being cool <laughs> with the students and it still retains the formality of the Mr. So, you know, a little bit of a, a compromise there. And they were like, oh no, no, you, you can't do that. And I, they said, you know, the students need to call you something a little more formal. So how about Mr. Aaron? And I was trying to explain, well, <laughs> at least in the U.S., you would never, at least, you know, we, we don't usually call our teacher by the first name. It's it's the last name, right? Even if it's shortened into a single letter, Miss C, yeah. right? So yeah, just an interesting experience. They ended up calling me Mr. Aaron for two years. So.
2: <laughs> I lost that
3: battle. <laughs> Okay, so last point is course design. I always like to end my podcast with something that people who are listening can uh, immediately apply to their courses or their course design process. So with that in mind, uh, a case study by Rogers et al. In 2007 found that instructional designers have a limited awareness of how they differed from the learners that they were designing for. Furthermore, the ADDIE model may only account for culture in the, any guesses, which phase? the analysis phase, right? So uh, yeah. Does, yeah. So, with this in mind, how can faculty and instructional designers account for a globally diverse audience when engaging in course design?
1: I think when you're asking the question, who is the audience, not only should you be questioning what roles they play, but what maybe culture is within that audience.
0: Learn your audience. Yes. You know, as someone who teaches at both with asu and a community college i can tell you i do my lectures differently for the different environments and the, and the reason for that is i've discovered that there's a certain expectation of students at a at a school like arizona state where you you can you think you can use certain metaphors certain examples um, within the community college because so many of those students are just taking a couple of courses to advance their skills. It's a very different environment. So I can't, I have to be very careful what examples I use and what metaphors I use because it may not be something they have familiarity with. I mean, you can drop a Shakespeare, a Shakespeare quote into a course at, you know very easily, but that quote could go over somebody's head in, in another context. So you really need to think about what you're trying to say and how you're trying to say it mm-hmm. and who you're saying it to. I
2: think I try to wrap my mind around the difference, differences or how you account for what you can accomplish in terms of design versus your facilitation. But one one thing is to try to make... Um, all of those those design, design decisions applicable to all students for improvement, and in particular, trying to move some of the more implicit things to explicit. So how do you advise students to approach you for communication? Do you promote a more casual form of address? Just answering all those questions right up front, however works best, so that students are sort of aware of the norms and the culture of the course. It helps all of them.
3: That would be a low uncertainty avoidance index. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Going back to Hofstede's model though. I've seen it uh, recommended to use universal design principles, though admittedly I'm not one to speak too much towards those as I'm learning about it myself. I do understand that you're basically increasing the chance that the various cultural factors will be accounted for by giving the users multiple avenues to engage with the content.
0: And, and I think... A good way to look at that is, you know, multiple examples. Um, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast on UDL by itself, um, so we don't have too much time to go into that now. But I think when giving multiple examples, don't assume that your example that you give the first time is going to be the one that's going to work with mm-hmm. everybody. Kind of assume it's only going to work with half your students, and then use a, and then come up with a second example that you hope would work with at least a third of your students. I mean, and, and then come up with another one that will work with us another percentage because hopefully there's going to be enough overlap that you'll cover everybody with the different examples, but you have something to be aware of.
1: Going off of that, I think it's important for instructors to learn the various learning styles and find ways to include instructional techniques that lend themselves to a variety of learning styles so that they know that they are hitting at some point within their course. A variety.
3: Mm-hmm. So keep the variety in terms of activities, in terms of the maybe the media that you put out there, videos, audio, documents.
2: Exactly. And make friends with a representative from your Office of International Students or whatever organizational supports are available to you. Make friends with those yes. folks. Bring them in. Absolutely. They're experts.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today for our discussion on educating the global audience. If you would like to learn more about this topic, then may I recommend moving to a foreign country and living the dream live and in person. Just about any four-year college degree is sufficient to get an English teaching job overseas. However, if that's not feasible at the moment, then I can't recommend enough the book, Culture and Online Learning, Global Perspectives and Research. A vast majority of today's discussion is based on the content of this text. I'd like to thank our panelists, Stephen Crawford, Jeanette Senecal, Celia Kuchwaitiwa, and a special shout out to our producer, Uber calls him because he always gets you where you need to go, Ricardo Leon. Thank you very much.
0: You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as in Instruction by Design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.
3: Music. Your voice
0: sounds real sexy, dude. I, I, I should have a cold every week, right? Aaron's (laughs) Aaron's <laughs> brand sexy back.
1: You Boom. remind me of the museum videos. That you
3: <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> I
1: don't know about that museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <which> museum? <laughs> <No>.
2: Tell me <laughs>
3: about your perception. <clears throat> okay. So first off, uh, let me apologize. I have a slight cold, so my voice is a bit coarse. No?
1: No. Damn, okay. I don't apologize. Okay. You don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> We are on record mode. <laughs> it's going to be so
2: much fun to edit, man. <laughs> well,
1: I
0: keep thinking, like, okay, we can use this. And part. now we
2: can't.
1: <laughs> and then, and and now with Aaron
3: talk, cut it, <laughs> <laughs> edit. All right.